Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. It's great having you all join us this week for Theology Unplugged, and I feel like we're going to go really unplugged today, and we are thinking and talking about the future and about God knowing the future. And we have a big God. Here is, a, I'm just going to read a couple verses, and then I have a feeling we're going to have a little bit of a fight today. But here are the couple verses. I'm in Exodus 32, and in verse 9, after all the golden calf stuff has happened, the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and or that I may make a great nation of you. So here we have God telling Moses, get out of my way, I'm going to crush these people. Moses begs God, pleads with God, and then verse 14 it says, the Lord relented from the disaster they had spoken of bringing on his people. Now Sam and JJ and Michael, when I read this, I think to myself, is there a potential that God maybe so we think God always speaks truth right and that he knows the future at all times he's all-knowing and how can God say I'm gonna do this get out of my way and then he changes his mind and is there a potential that God actually doesn't know the future and he does change his mind all the time because we have covered so far in this uh, in this series about God changing his mind right remember right. about uh, yeah. in Genesis chapter 6 specifically the idea of him changing his mind but this is this is more specific or, or this goes in a different direction maybe more broad in the sense of what what are the basic assumptions we carry about God in our theology that that are challenged by passages like this? Yeah, that's right. And passages, uh, I, I think of the passage where um, Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac, and he he gets to the very point where he is going to sacrifice Isaac and and uh, brings the knife up, and then is stopped by God, and God says, "Now I know." that you have faith in me or as, that you follow me. As if God didn't know that in advance, which would, but he should know it in advance because he knows everything, right? Is God learning? The implication, okay. is, is God learning? Um, if he is learning, then that assumes that there's something that he doesn't know. So does he potentially? If that is true, then that assumes that he is not uh, outside of time and space. I mean, there's just so much. Yeah, we that, talked about Genesis 6. God regretted that he had made man. Did he regret that he had made man? In other words, if he had known it was going to turn out like this, he wouldn't have done it. Now, okay, so what we're going to talk about, this is open theism, is is a camp that is developed. And the way that is kind of shocking to me, the more that I dove into open theism, is it's not like people are saying God can't know the future. It's not like saying, well, God isn't maybe quite as big and strong and all-knowing as we thought he was. But uh, And guys, fight with me if I'm wrong here. But the way that I'm viewing open theism is that instead God chooses 
to suspend his all-knowingness as it relates to human affairs to basically allow our free will to work its way out. For some open theists, that's right. You know, people are going to caricature the view, but it's a little more nuanced. Someone like Greg Boyd, a big proponent of the view, is going to say, God does control some future events. God yeah. does know some future events. He knows events. what he himself is going to do. He just doesn't know what we are going to do. But he's a really know. good psychologist, and so <laughs> when he makes predictions, they almost look like foreknowledge because he's really good at predicting what we'll, we'll, we'll do. Well, can I try to do my best of uh, defining open theism because yeah. this is the issue, and this is another one of these where we have multiple scriptures that we can go to yeah. that become a problem passage for what would be called the traditional view of God. Okay. The open theist view is not the traditional view of God and his nature and his relationship towards time and knowledge and um, uh, his relationships with us. And it, 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 the open theism is, is not really anything new in the sense of its individual components, but it seems that in the 90s, uh, maybe early 90s, mid-90s, you have a surgence of many people within evangelicalism Um, uh, conservative Christianity that begin to look at the Bible and say, you know, whenever I'm looking at the Bible, I see something different than what classic Christianity sees or has traditionally taught. I see God as as in time interacting, not some God that is outside of time sovereignly controlling. I see a God that is learning. Now I know that you're a man who follows me. I see a God that is in a dynamic relationship with us that is a true give and take. He is he is truly in this this uh, if you want to put it the, this chess game of life. And so it's a movement within evangelicalism. I I would say that it's still a movement today. It's still big today that challenges the classic view of God, that God is omniscient, knows everything, including the future, is is, uh, uh, above time. He is eternal outside of time, uh, that God exists in an eternal now, and also that he as you said, expressed him, exercises his omnipotence. Well, and I want to ask your guys' help in this. You know, as I thought a lot about this, it almost starts to feel like an issue of special pleading where uh, Bible-believing Christians who hold to inerrancy can trot out dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of texts that seem to very starkly affirm God's foreknowledge and, and, and for some of us even his foreordination of future events and, and, and so it can feel like special pleading is they say, well, that, that could be understood this way. Well, you could explain that this way. And after a while, this long string of possibilities starts to sound increasingly improbable. And that's difficult for me in dialoguing with that person because I want to say, let's not ask what's possible. I, I feel like if I'm going to function and land in a position, I need to ask what's probable. So I start to wonder what's driving them towards this sort of cumulatively improbable reading of so many texts that seem self-evident. Is there something presuppositional driving that? Yeah, there is. Uh, The bottom line is, and open theists are very open about this, they insist that if God is going to have a meaningful relationship with human beings of give and take, a relationship of love, a relationship in which our response to him is morally accountable, either worthy of praise or blame, that our decisions have to be entirely and altogether free. Um, And if God knows in advance what our decisions are, then they are settled and therefore they are not free. 
So it largely open theists, and I, I would give them credit for this because I think it's a valid um, incentive on their part. They want to preserve the integrity of human decision-making. They want to preserve the reality and the foundations for moral accountability. I think we all do. We all believe that we are responsible for our decisions. We're going to give an account of every word that's come out of our mouth to God. Well, open theists say that can't happen if God infallibly and exhaustively knows in advance what we're going to say and what we're going to choose. And see, what Sam has done there is very important because, in other words, some people, to be charitable— feel obligated to hold this view. You know, if, if those presuppositions are granted, they almost feel trapped into this view. So I think it's important that we don't just have a war of proof texts, although it's good to know what Scripture teaches about God's foreknowledge, but that we ask the deeper questions of, of why do you feel driven in this direction? Yeah, and, and I would just logically, I would logically have a problem with what, that, what you just said, Sam, because, because if, I, if I, after being married to my wife for 11 years, if I say to her uh, something like, hey, baby, I love you, and I know precisely word for word what she's going to say back to me. I know absolutely what she's going to say because we've said it so many times. So it's not because I'm all-knowing, but I truly know what she's going to say. And she says it to me, like, number one, did she not say it freely? And number two, did it lose its impact of love? Well, and I would say no to both of those. I'd say God could still know what's going to happen, and and it's still done by someone freely, and it didn't kill a loving relationship. We're, we're about to make it much more complex than that. <laughs> yeah, the problem is you don't infallibly know that of your wife because at the last second she could choose to say something that would utterly shock and surprise you. Like, and, I want a divorce? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> or just what? <laughs> yeah. No, but but if but let's say I am all knowing then, and I do truly know what she's going to say because I am all knowing, and I've seen into the future, and I've seen her say it, and then she says it to me, and maybe even I wooed her heart and almost even manufactured these circumstances upon which she said it to me. I don't think it is logically nonsensical for for that to to still be a loving relationship. And so I think if the rock bottom of open theism is people, if God knows everything, that it truly wouldn't be a freely loving relationship, I just don't even see that in my own marriage. Well, I mean, I would agree with you because I'm a compatibilist. I believe God's exhaustive foreknowledge of the of the free choices of human beings is compatible with those choices being morally responsible and either worthy of praise or blame. Um, well, Michael's open a lot more theist, of an open theist than us. Open theists need... are incompatibilists. They do not believe those two realities are compatible or harmonious. They believe they are mutually exclusive. You know, whenever you're you're asking the question, for me, the the questions of open theism, I, I, it's very understandable because you are reading through history. History, you are reading through this give and take. There are enough passages where the God does seem to change His mind; that He does seem to truly be interacting with us and adjusting accordingly to where I say, okay, I, I, I see where you're coming from, at least from the narrative. And the narrative makes up the majority of the Scripture. But whenever you come to certain passages of Scripture, there is going to be some conflict there that I would say as a, as a uh, classical theist or someone who believes in the eternality of God and the uh, exhaustive foreknowledge of God, that I would say, how do you deal with this? But for me, ultimately, some things that come into play in this debate um, are, are some things that the open theist would utter, utterly reject and say that, I am being unbiblical, or they may put it in a in a uh, different way that may be more um, 
uh, more smiting is that I am just following Platonic Greek thought about that, God. That you are following Platonic yeah, thought. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that I'm just adopting a classical Greek philosophy about God that has been around. I'm not being biblical. I'm following a Western society and the way that they have always thought about God being eternal, outside of time, static, immovable, the unmoved mover of Aristotle and, and so on. And that would be part of the criticism that they would bring. And that's where, for, for me at least, and I don't know if we're going to get there yet, but for me, I would say, wait a minute. Yeah, that that's a completely invalid criticism, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a little bit. Well, let, let's just throw in a very concrete biblical example. Let's take Jonah. So everybody knows the story of Jonah. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them in 40 days I'm going to judge them. Well, and we know what Jonah does. And, of course, later in the book, we know precisely why he did it. Because Jonah says, I know what kind of God you are because if I'd gone and preached to them and they would repent— you're just the kind of God who's going to forgive them. And I don't want you to forgive them. I want them to be incinerated. I hate the Ninevites. I don't want salvation to extend beyond the, the people of Israel. And so we know what happens. Jonah goes, he preaches, God relents. He does not judge them as he had said that he would. Now, the question is, has God changed? Did God not know what the Ninevites would do? Um, did he perhaps say to himself, well, I don't know if they're going to repent or not, but I'll send Jonah to preach. And if they do, then I'll change my mind and forgive them. It's very clear God knew exactly what he intended to do, because if he really intended to judge them, why would he have sent Jonah to tell them that in the first place? Why not just go ahead and incinerate them? Yeah. So we need to understand that there, when we talk about the immutability of God, we mean his character doesn't change, um, his life does not change, but God in his interactions with us does. The fact of the matter is we were at one time enemies of God, but now we're his friends. Well, what changed? Well, obviously something changed in the heart of God, something changed in the heart of mankind. So God interacts with us relationally in ways that there are changes, but they're changes that God himself not only knew in eternity past, but decreed would come about and to in be, time. And to be especially clear, there are changes that if he didn't make would make him changeable. Exactly. They're actually an expression of the fact that he doesn't change. If the Ninevites had repented and then God said, you know what, I've had a really bad day. I'm going to incinerate you all anyway. I take back my offer. Then God would be mutable. Then he would be mutable God, and capricious. God will always act in accordance with his character. So here's my question to you guys. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Mind blown. <laughs> well, no, 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 seriously, think about it. And let's close the broadcast. <laughs> Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Does God, uh, for example, uh, some event, let, let's 9-11, you know, God looks back, sees the planes fly into the World Trade Center, slaps himself upside the head and say, wow, never saw that one coming. Is God ever caught off guard? Is he surprised? Literally, essentially, is God ever found to be shocked by things that we do or say that he neither knew in advance nor decreed? Well, I mean, it would seem, you know, so I like to be a person of the word of God, Sam. Uh, so it would seem that, I mean, true, like when it says he relented, like that that was real, you know, like like there was a real... Uh, you know, I, I think this is the struggle that we work with here is, you know, it seemed like like Jesus was surprised 
by the faith of a person, right? That uh, now you could say, well, it wasn't a true surprise or it wasn't like a wow. You know, so, I mean, there's a certain sense of like, does, does, does Jesus ever say wow? Or <laughs> that, ne- you know, so you're saying that didn't occur to See, me. See, I, I, would, I, would, I would use Jesus differently than I would saying God in this instance, because I do believe that Jesus, uh, though could access at any time his omniscience uh, for the sake of redemption, did not access it. But, so but so that you're saying different. that a time that Jesus was surprised, it was because he wasn't accessing his divinity. Yeah, well, he didn't know something. I mean, he didn't have all the knowledge of what was going on whenever the woman But he did know when he told Peter, cloak. like, go and catch this fish and open its mouth and you'll find this. Prophetically. Uh, okay, well, let, let, let's take the clear example. What about Peter's denials of Jesus? Yeah. Jesus says in the upper room, truly I tell you, this very night, not two days from now, this night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Now, when Peter actually did precisely that, was that not a blameworthy denial? Could somebody said, hey, look, um, since Jesus knew it in advance and Peter therefore had to do it, therefore Peter didn't need to repent of this, it wasn't a sin, he did it necessarily. Is it not obvious from the biblical text, number one, that Jesus infallibly knew that he would deny him, that he would do it not once, not twice, but three times, that he would do it before the rooster crows, Mm -hmm. that it would be that very night, and yet Peter was morally accountable. Peter was brokenhearted. He was grieved. He needed to repent of that. So I don't—we have multiple—J.J. mentioned a moment ago—we have multiple dozens of examples where God infallibly prophesies, foreknows, declares something's going to happen— that involves human decisions, and those decisions are morally blameworthy or praiseworthy. And let's be clear, we're not now going to transition into a neat and tidy explanation of exactly how those two things interweave. Scripture doesn't deign to do that for us. And Mm -hmm. so I think people need to understand that just because God doesn't explain himself, it doesn't make it logically contradictory. You know, a Mm -hmm. quick example would be, uh, and and the reason I address this is not because I want to lose you listeners, but because because this is one of the accusations of an open theist, right? That, that, it, that you can't have your cake and eat it too. That God doesn't get to be in control of everything and know everything and you be a morally um, accountable person who makes meaningful choices. The problem is scripture has no problem with those two things being compatible, but doesn't explain to us exactly how they work. But we already know that logically they're not contradictory. In other words, we're not being asked to believe that someone is pregnant and not pregnant at the same time. Mm -hmm. That would be logical contradiction. But at one point, we are asked to believe that someone could be pregnant and still be a virgin. Mm -hmm. Now, if we ask, how could this be? We might not have any clue how to answer that question, but it's not inherently contradictory. It's just beyond our understanding. No, that's good. Okay, so I've got a question for you guys. Um, Trying not to be logically inconsistent here, but if if we are told something, so let's say we are told something that God will do in Exodus and he ends up not doing that. If we're told something that God is going to do to Jonah or to the Ninevites and God ends up not doing that, and that's not a logical inconsistency, uh, things are fair at play. How, therefore, do we read John three sixteen and have maybe an idea that God might not consistently do what he's told us he's going to do? So, so how, how is my eternal life, uh, how can I know that I'm going to have eternal life if I see in the Bible that there are times when God says something and ends up not doing it? Because I think we have to recognize, especially in the Old Testament, the difference between an unconditional decree and a conditional decree. 
it's very obvious that the situation with Jonah was conditional. It's very clear that when God said 40 days from now, um, I'm going to destroy them, was suspended upon the assumption that they would not repent. Uh, as I said a moment ago, if that were not the case, why did he bother sending Jonah in the first place? Why go preach and tell them if it was inevitable? Uh, there are unconditional declarations by God. There are those that are suspended on unspoken but assumed conditions that if this comes to pass or if that does not come to pass. Now, with the question about how then can we trust God when he says, as he does in John 3.16, that if you believe in my son, you'll never perish but have everlasting life. Well, let's remember that God pledges, for example, in Hebrews 6, I cannot lie. In other words, when I commit myself to you and it's sealed by the blood of Christ and I base my very integrity and my reputation as truth-telling God on the fact that I will never leave you nor forsake you, we're dealing with something that is obviously unconditional. Okay, okay. so you're saying a conditional uh, is not a lie. It was conditioned on on something that did not come true in a certain way. Uh, but then unconditional is all you know. You can you can take that to the bank, right? So how do we know John three sixteen is unconditional or conditional? Well, the, the, well it's, how, set, how it's set within the book of John that says over and over and over and again, if you believe my yeah. words, so if so what if I what if, if I believe then and then, uh, then think I stop believing? Well, Does no, that mean no, I, I don't mean, have eternal life? Uh, here's so. the thing, though: is, is the gospel itself? I mean, in some sense, is conditioned upon our, our believing though most of us around the table here would say that's conditioned upon God opening our heart. Yeah. Nevertheless, enduring to the end is the condition. And so I don't think that there's any conflict here that we're saying, here's the ones that are conditional, here's the ones that are unconditional, and here's the exact way to tell the difference. I would say that all of God's promises are true no matter what. He cannot lie. Some of them there is the condition that is stated very obviously, and some of them it may be implied, such as with Jonah, but it was implied in Jonah. There is this condition based upon his character and knowing his character. And so I would say that that, that dilemma is not quite so hard for me, you know, mm -hmm. as far as uh, being able to distinguish between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let, I want to, you know, some people may be asking, say, guys, come on. I'm, I'm giving you my time on this Saturday listening to you debate this. Is it really all that important? Are you, mm -hmm. you know, let me just say this. Uh, I would encourage our readers to go into the book of Isaiah and read Isaiah 41 through 48, mm -hmm. Isaiah 41 through 48. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because God, in essence, comes before the people and all the pagans that surround Israel. And he says, look, let's establish a test, a, a, an absolute, unqualified, surefire way of determining who is God and who isn't. Mm -hmm. And you know what the single question in that test is? Only one question. Who can infallibly declare the things that are yet to come? Mm -hmm. Who has exhaustive foreknowledge of what has not yet occurred? And God says, just me. Over and over and over again through those chapters, he challenges the pagan deities. He said, come on, step up. Here's the microphone. Tell us what's going to happen in the future. And then God says, and now let me give you an example of that. And he talks about raising up Cyrus before the man had ever been born. Uh, so the, the single distinguishing criterion by which God is known to be God is that he has exhaustive foreknowledge of the future. So if someone comes to me and says, I don't believe God has exhaustive foreknowledge of the future, I've got a real serious problem with that because that's the very foundation on which God says, that's how you know that I am he. 
And, and I know we're just about out of time, but I do want to bring up this idea that whenever you look at this, you're a, you're somehow um, guilt by association or the genetic fallacy because it came from the Greeks. It's automatically wrong, mm-hmm. and we got to understand that. That, that 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 can't be a principle that we bring to our theology because there's going to be all kinds of things that philosophers all around the world get right and that just because we agree with them doesn't automatically make our view wrong or our view associated with everything that they believed. I mean, Greek philosophers believed in God and they believed in, you know, the material existence of, of dirt. You know, it doesn't mean that uh, we have to deny such things. Um, they weren't always wrong. In other that's words. right. That's Just right. because most cultures believe it's wrong to kill babies doesn't make that moral belief uh, dubious. And also, whenever it comes to this issue, my belief in it is very much strengthened by a philosophy that does come outside of Scripture. And I know that's hard for a lot of people to say and maybe me to say at the end of this broadcast. But in Romans chapter 1, it clearly says that for, since the creation of the world, what is known about God has been made plain to them because he has shown it to them, his invisible attributes, his divine nature and eternal powers since the creation of the world, not just since the creation of the Bible. So what I'm saying here is this, is that whenever I say that God is eternal, And whenever I say that God is necessarily, he has to know everything in order to be God, he has to have certain attributes to his character, I'm not just saying that because it's found in the scripture, I'm saying that because it is necessary for the very definition of God for him to be these things or we don't have God any longer. That that and I would say I'm perfectly justified in using philosophy. So are you saying that you can't be an open theist and a Christian? Uh, no, that's not what I was saying. <laughs> oh, boy, that just opened up a yeah, whole other episode. Throw that out at the so end Sam, there, Tim. Sam, yeah. Sam, I'm so glad we're out of time. Yeah, because <laughs> okay, yeah, what makes someone a believer is that they love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you'll grow in his word. And that's what makes someone a Christian. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House a theological hub and coffee shop located at 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma. For more information on the Credo House or to support the ongoing work of its theological ministry, please visit www.credohouse.org.